This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. So thank you for coming. I wanted to get my thank yous out of the way before I begin because I may run long and I don't want to miss them. So thank you to the Freedom School, first of all, for offering me this opportunity to share my research and my passion for these women. And uh, I want to say thank you to Kimberly Fairbanks, who is one of our former graduate students. She has been my partner in this process. She's an actress, and she has crafted every word that these women say that you will see today with me. Unfortunately, She's, she doesn't only work for me. She also works for NBC, so she is uh, off filming right now and texted me at 8 a.m. this morning and said, they filmed all night last night, they're still filming this morning, and she was going to try and be here, but cannot. But we had a backup plan, which leads me to my biggest thank yous of the day, which is to uh, my two graduate students in the theater department right now, John Mullaney and Bree Knight, who have agreed to sort of step in and help me create these performances for you, even though Kimberly is not here. So today you'll get to see both my research and the way that I work within the theater, but also the way we map these histories on the body of the actor. And finally, I want to say a little thank you to the theater department. I'm so appreciative of so many faces here that I know, and that you've taken the time out of your day to come and support me, because I am a theater historian and I work in the theater department. My name is Dr. Valerie Joyce. And many times as a theater historian, I, that means that I study and I teach theater history. But I'm also a practitioner. I'm a director, a dramaturg, and most recently, a playwright. So I also see theater as a way to explore and to teach history. The historian and the artist often face similar dilemmas when conjuring the voices of the past particularly when those voices have been deliberately erased or marginalized in traditional historical narratives. And yet, both scholars and artists can share a common goal, to allow these oppressed voices to speak again and to invite contemporary audiences to imagine the experiences and understand the lives of long-silenced communities. Recuperating the lives of 17th, 18th, and 19th century African-American women presents a particular challenge for both the historian and the artist. The traces that remain of their stories are often buried deep in records that are left by others. John Ernest has described this process of reinscribing the lost tales of African-Americans over familiar narratives as a kind of performative historiography. The medium of performance offers a unique means to access, embody, and recuperate these lost histories. As a theater historian and director, my current project, I will speak for myself, works to unveil, document, and vivify long-forgotten early American black women by blending historical research with performance in what I call a living historiography. This project began as a series of nine monologues that I wrote, well, that I researched and wrote, which were titled Disembodied Voices. And they were inspired by early American scholar Odai Johnson's continued examination of issues of evidentiary absence when pursuing historical reconstruction. Johnson contends that the disappearance of a performance is never utterly without a trace. And that beginning from the smallest piece of immaterial evidence, a history is indeed acutely possible 
and acutely necessary. Johnson's challenge to recover what is now absent inspired the research and crafting of these characters as a way to envision the performance of a woman's life based on the impression left from her presence in history. In developing the script for Disembodied Voices, I wanted to use real women and whenever possible their own words. On the whole, the project breathed life into slave narratives, personal letters, memoirs, diary entries, court records, poems, public addresses, and newspaper advertisements in order to share these women's experiences, struggles, and journeys in their own voices. Each character is a case study of potentials and probabilities of what a black woman's <laughs> life might have been like in early America, and perhaps more importantly, this living historiography offers a roadmap for contemporary scholars to recover and reintegrate those lives and histories into our dominant narratives. So close your eyes for a moment. Go ahead, close them. And picture a black woman in America before the Civil War. Play out a scene in your mind about the life of this woman. Now open your eyes. Does it look like this? The persistent Mammy, that was Mammy, and Piccaninny stereotypes, she was the one with the tray, are with their compelling characterizations and distinctive dialects dominate the discussion of black women's lives before the Civil War. As stereotypes do, these have limited our modern American understanding of black women before 1865. However, they certainly do not tell the entire range of the actual experience. The relatively unexamined reality is that black women from colonial times through the early 19th century found ways to make bold choices within the confines of their situations at a time when society doubted that they were even intelligent enough to understand their circumstances. There are few biographies of these women because their actions were personal and their audience was private. Their choices were subtle, but their impact was substantial and sustained. For each Harriet Tubman or Sojourner Truth, there are hundreds of others who remain undocumented. Their stories remain unexamined because the evidence has been lost, ignored, or worse, intentionally erased. And as the nation commemorates the 150th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation this month, historians and artists must begin to piece together the scraps of evidence that can revitalize these women's stories in order to fully recognize the foundational ways in which they have shaped the American experience from its very beginning. Today, I will briefly explore and re the research and development of my work. I will speak for myself. Through a close examination of the creation of these three characters who lived in, in Philadelphia before 1863, Abigail, Matilda, and Mrs. Mary E. Webb. These are all monologues that I wrote. In order to examine the ways that black women shaped the American experience from its very beginning through a nonviolent social change in an intensely racist society. 
Although the process for each developing each monologue was relatively similar, each case posed its own unique issues of evidence, construction, and performance choices, which I will talk about today. Crafting tangible and credible identities for these insightful and at times incited women requires striking a delicate balance between scholarly rigor and artistic license. Through my research for these monologues, what began as distant and disembodied voices became present and distinctive characters who allow modern audiences to directly engage with the social, cultural, religious, sexual, and gender constructs of early America. Their stories are as compelling today as they were centuries ago. Developing each character required meticulous research into their social, educational, and economic circumstances in order to create a text that would both reflect the woman's historical situation and provide a compelling dramatic arc. One of the exciting challenges of this type of research when the remaining absence is greater than the presence is defining credible evidence that testifies to these women's experience. Sometimes only traces remain to attest to a fuller life of a woman, as in the case of Abigail. Abigail is a former slave who has recently been freed by her French owner after they fled the island of Saint-Domingue, which is now Haiti, during slave uprisings in 1791. Her monologue offers a glimpse into life after slavery during the early republic. The creation of this character was inspired by an entry that appeared on the list of the dead from the yellow fever epidemic that killed almost 5,000 Philadelphians in 1793. This is the list. Abigail's name, as you can see, she's first on the list there. Abigail's name was noteworthy because unlike the thousands, four to 5,000 dead, unlike the thousands of other names from Philadelphia notable families, hers was followed by a simple description, a negress. In the overall development of a living historiography, Abigail represents the extreme example of creating a presence from absence because there is literally no other information about her other than the color of her skin and that she existed. Left only with this information to testify to the entirety of a human existence, I turned to supplementary evidence to create her biography and text and to craft a vocal and physical presence that might accurately envision and fully embody Abigail's post-slavery experience. Three carefully recorded aspects of late, 19, late 18th century life in Philadelphia proved useful in imagining Abigail's daily existence. These were Reverend Richard Allen's published defense of the Free African Society, the empirical records that, of the yellow fever and its effects on the city, and Dr. Benjamin Rush's meticulously detailed accounts of the fever's course through the body. Each of these sources provided plausible given circumstances for Abigail that informed context, content, and style choices for the monologue. By 1793, Abigail's new home of Philadelphia had become the metropolis of North America. The city was a thriving port controlling a quarter of the export trade of the United States and a complex urban center, housing both the state and the federal government. Teeming with a cosmopolitan population of some 51,000 Philadelphians, Philadelphia was home to Quakers, statesmen, and recently transplanted members of the French nobility who, like Abigail's master, former master, had fled the revolt in Saint-Domingue. Also, as a result of Pennsylvania's 1780 law mandating gradual emancipation, Philadelphia had become one of the most emancipated North American cities with 6,537 free black people. Incorporating these demographics 
grounded Abigail's given circumstances and established her status in the culture of the city. Many of Philadelphia's free blacks belonged to Reverend Richard Allen and Absalom Jones's Free African Society, a groundbreaking mutual aid association that fostered identity, leadership, and unity founded in 1787. I made Abigail a dedicated member of the Free African Society, playing an important part in their volunteer effort during the yellow fever epidemic of 1793. When yellow fever seized Philadelphia in late summer, panic mounted and the citizens fled in droves. Estimates hold that 40% of the whites and 14% and of all of the blacks left the city. One of the most important contexts of Abigail's monologue is the medical misinformation that prevailed during this period and kept many blacks in the city. You can see there, the red is where they, there were the, they were hit the worst, 20 to 67% of the deaths we're in the red zones there. So you can see it's fairly concentrated, but it hits the entire city. Um, Dr. Benjamin Rush, one of Philadelphia's leading physicians and citizens, promoted the notion that blacks were immune to the disease that caused yellow fever. And relying on this assurance, many of the blacks remained. Mayor uh, Matthew Clarkson pleaded with Reverend Allen and Mr. Jones to mobilize the members of the Free African Society who had stayed to volunteer to nurse the sick and dying and the dead in the abandoned city. Reverend Allen was a man who preached morality and discipline, noting for his followers that they were each a reflection of their entire race. In every situation, he counseled Philadelphia's free blacks to, I have the quote up here, let your conduct Manifest your gratitude toward the compassionate masters who have set you free, and let no rancor or ill will lodge in your breasts for any bad treatment you may have received. If you do, you transgress against God, who will not hold you guiltless. This quote becomes particularly compelling for Abigail because she is such a dedicated member. With this urging, hundreds of his followers, including Abigail, volunteered during the hellish days after several weeks of yellow fever. In the monologue, Abigail serves as one of Dr. Benjamin Rush's nurses. Throughout the epidemic, Dr. Rush trained his nurses to give relief to hundreds of infected patients by bleeding therapy and by purging them through the ingestion of mercurial chloride as a laxative. Not a good plan. Dr. Rush and other physicians of the period kept thorough records of the stages and effects of yellow fever, which informed the content and context of Abigail's exchange with her wealthy but comatose patient. It became clear that the patient was going to die from the virus when they began to vomit something that looks like coffee grounds, called the black vomit, which is sometimes accompanied by bleeding from the nose, the tonsils, and the gums. Then, after that, the body would appear purplish-yellow, and the patient would be overcome with hiccups, agitations, deep and distressed sighing, comatose delirium, and finally, death. Abigail's stylized language is drawn from and inspired by this record here, a narrative of the proceedings of the black people, Reverend Allen and Absalom Jones's public rebuttal of publisher Matthew Carey's post-fever and uh, criticisms of the members of the Free African Society. Carey, who was a publisher and, and published many, many, many things over the course of several decades, was uh, a leading citizen of Philadelphia and accused the blacks of exploiting the sick and abusing their desperate state during the epidemic. One of his specific accusations was that black nurses manipulated their patients by charging higher rates for service. 
at times, in fact, bidding wars would erupt between the families of the sick and the, and the dying for nursing care. Allen and Jones's rebuttal refuted Carey's accusation, asserting that many whites actually preferred black nurses because of their alleged immunity, because they wouldn't bring it into the house with them. It was, of course, the venerable Dr. Rush who had generated much of this misleading information, and he was later accused by Allen and Jones of disseminating false reports in an effort to keep the blacks in the city for assistance. Whether the misinformation was purposeful or not, those free blacks who were urged to stay and help, as Abigail did, walked straight into peril because they believed in the cause and because they believed in their immunity. It is this strong sense of duty that instigated, instigated by Reverend Allen's call, Dr. Rush's confidence, and her patient's dire circumstances that create the central conflict for the character. For Abigail's children are also ill, and they need her too. In developing all of the characters, two issues of dramatic construction became abundantly clear for all of my script analysis people. First, each woman must be engaged in a central conflict that drives the action of their monologue, and second, they must each exist within the mom a moment of heightened tension, whether they are faced with a crisis, a catharsis, or on a crusade. Finding the specific moment where the stakes are the highest for the character that is also grounded in the historical context, immediate for the audience, and fraught with conflict became the most critical decision-making part of the process. In order to set Abigail in a moment of heightened tension, the monologue occurs just before dawn in a private setting in, in the home of her patient, the wealthy Mr. Taylor, who's all alone. He struggles through a comatose delirium in the final stages of the infection. Abigail has been up for several nights and can, le and can leave her patient at dawn and go home to her children. Abigail's anxiety over this central conflict, torn between her responsibilities and rushing home to her own children, becomes evident after wrestling her patient back into bed. She confides, you know, I have my own babies to worry about too. When I left my William, he, he had a chill and his head ached, but Dr. Rush assures us that we do not succumb to the disease and he will be fine. She is assuring herself more than the comatose Mr. Taylor, and as her spirits flag, her exhaustion seems noticeably like the first stages of the fever. As the monologue ends and the lights dim, we are left to imagine the inevitable fate that awaits Abigail. So Brie has agreed to play parts of this. I actually have video of Kim doing this. John videoed Kim, so you'll see that. But Kim and I are going to create a little, we're going to map some history onto to Brie's body today. Um, so as each monologue developed, if you want to come up and get on the, oh, I was going to put this on for you. I'll give you some light. As each monologue developed beyond basic plot and dialogue, it became increasingly clear that language, dialect, and physical choices were the defining features that would not only distinguish between the many characters of the play, but would also allow the audiences to fully engage with the personal experience. So, your Abigail, your your um, all of the characters speak to someone. They, they find their answer in the other character, as we know. So um, Mr. Taylor is comatose, so she's sort of alone. She's alone in this larger city. She's alone in this bedroom. She's torn because she knows her children are out there somewhere ill. And she's exhausted. It's been six nights. So let's, let's think about physical choices first. Mm -hmm. So this is a as a mother of two, I can tell you, it's kind of exhausting. She's a mother of four. Kim and I decided that she's a mother of four. And 
she's been up for six nights. So let's create a, a physicality. You've just wrestled Mr. Taylor into bed, and you sit down, and it's been unlocking. Yeah, there you go. And you can, you want to, do you, do you want to, yeah, because you're chilly. It is. You're getting that yellow fever. You have the chills already. And also it's dawn. So take a deep breath. You can sit down. You've already, you've already wrestled him into place. And one of the things about, one of the things about being alone in the house with this man, who's comatose, and being alone in the city in general, is that it allows Abigail a little more familiarity, a little more ease and freedom with the kind of interaction that she would normally have with a white man who was wealthy. Um, so she begins to slump, exactly. That's lovely. Just breathing that in. What are you thinking about? Good. And I think that that's exactly, I mean, that is the overwhelming physical and mental state, right? However, we have our driving central conflict that is moving you, that has to carry you at all times, right? Even though physically you're in decline, there's this anxiety about William. Children. Yes. And they are out and beyond, too. So if this man would either die or dawn would come, you could get to where you want to go and do the things that you, in your heart, need to do, right? So that gives you that gives you a driving place, sort of centered in your gut. Good. So I gave I I did not ask Bree to memorize these long monologues, but I gave her a little bit of the dialogue. Do you do you want the page? No. I don't. Do you want me to feed you the lines? So. Mr. So Reverend Allen, Abigail references Reverend Allen all the time because he is that he's been this dominant force in her life. Reverend Allen has told you he is preaching morality and discipline to us, to us members of the Free African Society. And, and you are say, can you just do? He says we are the reflection of our entire race. He says we are the reflection of our entire race. Good. Okay. Relax here. There you go. But there is, a, there is a central dignity to Abigail. Abigail has been through a lot. She escaped this revolt. She's come all the way up to Philadelphia. She's got, some, she's got a home that she's living in with her children. She's got some agency in her world. So these words mean something to her. Allow them to sort of lift you and, and, and steal you against just sort of running out and after your children. I, I am responsible to you, Mr. Taylor. Can you do that one more time, the lines? Sure. He says that I am a reflection of my entire race. He says I am a reflection of the entire race. Of my entire race. Of my entire race. Good. Those words really, they keep her here. Her responsibility to Mr. Taylor and to Reverend Allen and to Dr. Rush because she's been invested with all this responsibility. She's left to take care of this man and she is being paid but she's also learned nursing skills. Okay so it draws her up a little bit more. Let's move on to um, he tells me if if you do if you if you let any ill, Ill will if I let any ill will or rancor in my heart I will transgress against God. 
I let any ill will or rancor in my heart, I will transcend God. Transgress Trans against. Against. I will, I will make him. And he will not hold me guiltless. And he will not hold me guiltless. See, that's really interesting. What's really great for me is that I'm hearing these words out of a new mouth, just as you are right in this moment. So in some ways, when, when I work with Kim, there's this, there's this central dignity that she has almost in every character. And I never hear how that impacts her um, because she, there, there is so much, I mean, she was a slave. How can there not be ill will, right? I hear this sort of like, he tells me this, and yet I, I resent that. I resent because I want to go out. That's a really interesting reading. Is that, can you, do you, what do you think about those lines when you say them? Well, it was interesting. I remember when I was reading the monologue um, last night, that particular section that you had highlighted about Reverend Allen and what he says, and thinking about the role of religion, a relatively new religion to, to the black population. Great insight. From Africa. So, and just the fact that, that religion may just be something to hold on to because there's not much else really physically other than like family for slaves or freed slaves to hold on to. So, religion more as a comfort, a physical comfort than a spiritual comfort. Great. Fantastic. All right, can we give three? Thank you. I'll have you back up in a moment. Okay, so I wanted now, to show you uh, some of Kim's performance.
So you can see, you can see that there's one other choice we didn't talk about because I didn't want to ask Bree to, to whip up a little West Indian accent for me overnight. But one of the one of the things that controls one of the contexts that she's living in is that she was uh, she's the, was the slave on a French plantation and she came from uh, she came from Africa through Haiti to Philadelphia. So that is one of the other choices that we made in creating this this uh, character. Let's put you back on play. So her richly layered performance illustrates the ways in which scholars and performers might craft living historiographies that establish and explore the complexities of life as a former slave in the early republic. Abigail's central conflict, as well as her ultimate, and her ultimate end, as we know, she dies, serve as a counterpoint to Dr. Rush's life-altering work during the epidemic, which ultimately was for the benefit and the detriment of Philadelphians of both races. And utilizing Allen and Jones's text to create Abigail's detailed observations offer the audience both specific understanding of the dire circumstances and, more importantly, a broader sense of the ways in which these free African society volunteers played a part in the city's recovery. Her monologue works to remember, recuperate, and honor all of those free African society volunteers who risked their lives and whose generous sacrifice remains widely unacknowledged. The next piece from I Will Speak For Myself is Matilda. And as the lights rise on Matilda, she strides confidently into the room and takes in her audience with a sweeping glance. It is 1828, and Matilda is a rabble-rousing agitator, a grassroots agitator, and an early agent of nonviolent social change. Her strong, clear voice rings out as she demands, how can you, as mothers of daughters, not fight for the right to educate these young women? Developing the text for Matilda's monologue was, in contrast to the other Philadelphia women, relatively simple because her words are drawn directly from an 1827 letter to the editors of the short-lived Freedom's Journal. The letter establishes the author as black, a woman, and educated, so the setting became the most important choice in creating this character. Matilda's larger given circumstances needed to plausibly be where a, a free black woman might be able to have access to the Freedom's Journal and a passion for education activism. By 1827, Philadelphia's bl black population was 97% free. And while the Freedom's Journal was published in New York, the editors had ties to Delaware and Philadelphia. Matilda's letter also coincided with a burgeoning revolution in Philadelphia that grounded her personal text in the larger cultural moment. As slave narratives and histories of the antebellum period and anyone who saw the keynote address yesterday knows, the formal education of African Americans in public and private settings developed slowly and unevenly through even the 20th century. By the late 1820s, the, the black public, free and enslaved, varied widely in levels of literacy. Historian Elizabeth McHenry, in her work Forgotten Readers, notes that a cultural resistance to the black literacy movement, there, that there was a, black, a resistance because it posed a significant threat to maintaining black subordination. It is noteworthy, then, that nine African-American literary societies cropped up in Philadelphia between 1828 and 1841. The All-Male Reading Room Society, one of America's first African-American literary societies, was established in 1828, a year after this letter. And the Female Literary Society followed shortly in 1831. 
Matilda and the women of the Free Literary Society are some of the forgotten readers that McHenry asserts are from a virtually unknown chapter in African American social and literary history. They are the absence that this monologue works to address. One of the great challenge, challenges that McHenry faced in recuperating these female readers is that in addition to the complete absence of any records of agendas or meeting notes, the very action of reading is ephemeral and almost impossible to recapture. Some of the evidence that remains to guide the way to reconstructing these women's lives is in their subsequent writings. McHenry notes that the readers eventually used their literacy skills in writing as a means of asserting identity, recording information, and communicating their demands for full citizenship and equal participation in the life of the Republic. When Matilda's letter was aligned with the evidence of the forgotten readers, she became firmly rooted in the setting of Philadelphia. As her letter precedes the Female Literary Society's investiture by several years, I envisioned Matilda as one of the women who were fully engaged at the beginning of the black literacy movement, calling for change long before the change actually occurred. In turn, I heard Matilda's voice as more strident in person than it was in print, and carried and lifted by the passion she feels for her subject. In order to dramatize Matilda's text from a more passive mode of letter writing or reading, I changed her imagined audience and raised the stakes of the moment at hand. Her, letter intends, it, her, her letter's intended audience was the educated black male editors of the Freedom's Journal and the black readership. Given her status in that larger society, Matilda began her provocative letter by respectfully asking for permission to speak. Will you allow a female to offer a few remarks upon a subject that you must allow to be all important? I don't know that in any of your papers you have said su su uh, sufficient upon the education of females. This deferential opening request allows the reader to decide if they have any interest in her argument at all as she gently approaches her theme. For the monologue, Matilda's immediate setting becomes a gathering of a few dozen uh, free black women in Philadelphia in 1828 who would be aware of and probably have familial or uh, social connections to the, recently, the men who recently formed the Reading Room Society. This more semi-private setting gives Matilda a higher status among her peers and allows her to have a less conciliatory tone as she, invest in, as she instigates her own educational revolution for her black female peers and particularly for their daughters. Through this conceit, Matilda becomes present for the theater audience, and although almost none of the text is changed from the original letter, she is now able to actively pursue the higher stakes of her immediate goal, exhorting her audience of mothers to fight for the right to educate their daughters. These women's indifference, her, her, their inability or their lack of vision, provide Matilda with her obstacle as she challenges them. Do you, like so many others, think that our mathematical knowledge should be limited to fathoming the dish kettle? Her fervent and elevated language marks Matilda as an educated character, and her logical argument, firmly rooted in emotion, underscores her specifically female audience. I'm going to ask Bree to join me one more time. Yes. So Matilda is educated. Uh, Kimberly and I decided that she has you know has a mid-atlantic dialect this time and she does not sit mm -hmm. she has the she what is she doing what is her objective she is uh calling to action some women uh fellow 
citizens to stand up for their right and desire to receive equal education. Right. She's exhorting them. So why don't you, you want to go over that, you want to enter the space? So remember, she's with her peers. She's not in the large, she does no longer deferential. She needs to quiet these ladies down because they're, they're gabbing. It's, I imagine it in like a library setting or, or, a, or someone's home. So, but they've all gathered and they know these men and they have started their own society and Matilda is ready to light the fire. So you come in and you quiet that, ladies, ladies, how can you as mothers of daughters not fight for the right to educate them? Ladies, ladies, how as mothers of daughters can you not fight for the right to educate your children? Thank you, nope, that's fine. That's fine. Okay, good. Come back up here. Come on. Feel your light. There you go. All right. So, who are these women? My peers. Mm-hmm. Do you have a daughter? Um, you know, that's a question I was going to ask you. I would think so, um, given that I am calling for equal rights and relating to them as a mother. So I would think I have at least a daughter. Great. Then you have a daughter. And these people have some daughters? Mm -hmm. And you know them? Yes. So there's familiarity? Yes. Yes. Good. And what are they doing? Probably standing around, chit-chatting, or perhaps there was another presenter or speaker who made some sort of hubbub before, perhaps. Great. Okay, so you need to quiet them down? Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. why? Because I want their attention. And? Good. And I have something important to say. There you go. Because your goal is to get them moving. Yes. Okay, so come in one more time. There, can you murmur for me? <laughs> yeah, let a, little, let a little of that energy out so she can shut you up. Okay. A little more. Ladies. Ladies. How can you, as mothers, not fight for the right to educate your daughters. Good. Now, let's think tactics. What's the best way to, what's the best way to persuade these people? Kindness. Okay. And who are you? What does Matilda do? In terms of occupation? Sure. Oh. Or, or anything that springs to mind. How she know, and that's an interesting question because I was wondering if, in terms of her history, if she has any connections to slavery, if she is a freed slave, or if she was born free. What would what would what would be those two? What would be the outcome of either of those choices? Well, I would think if Matilda is coming, having been a free slave, particularly in that slaves were not allowed or afforded an education. So perhaps that might give more fire under her cause. Great. Whereas if she were born free, she may have had some inkling of an education. Um, That's great. Because as I said in the very beginning, these stories are as compelling now as they were then. Why? Why are you all here? For an education, right? Because education is the key. It's the key to moving through life through having success. 
She sees this in a time where this is not the social or cultural messaging, right? Mm -hmm. And so she has to grab you and say, wake up. The time is coming. We are going to be citizens. We are going to need to vote. We are going to need to be able to argue our way through things. If we don't start now, how, how in 20 years, how in 40 years can we be ready? Because she sees it coming long before it's there. Okay, good. So remember, uh, remember, I liked your first answer of kindness. That was interesting. I think that you know that you catch more you catch more flies with honey a little bit, a little maybe a little less aggressive in that first moment, and a little more toward your objective of getting them to do something rather than making them feel bad that they're not doing something. Tell them, show them, show them this is why we need this. Okay, yeah. one more time, if you could murmur again. You can get a little out of hand. Ladies, ladies, how can you, as mothers, refuse to fight for your daughter's education? That's all right. That's good. Were you persuaded? Of course you were. You're playing along. Good. Thank you, Debris. For their part, Matilda and the women of the Female Literary Society flourished in their first year with approximately 20 members who congregated every Tuesday for mental improvement. They developed circulating libraries and, inquire, and acquired invaluable knowledge in being able to argue for their place in the larger society. Their actions were so remarkable that in celebration of their anniversary, abolitionist and newspaper editor William Lloyd Garrison touted the group in The Liberator asserting that if the traducers of the Negro race would be acquainted with the moral worth, just refinement, and large intelligence of this association, their mouths would be hereafter dumb. They were growing as a literate group and recognizing literacy's potential in the fight for civil rights and were able to utilize writing in order to communicate, argue, assert, and demand recognition for full participation in their society. And with only these few lines left in the Freedom's Journal to attest to Matilda's personal convictions, this character represents the countless other Philadelphia women who valued education throughout the 19th century. In order to galvanize the formation of the Female Literary Society, women like Matilda must have stood before groups of black women in this same manner, arguing for equality and for their children's future, saying, we have minds that are capable and deserving of education and culture. And for ourselves and our daughters, we must rise up and face the difficulties in our way, in the way of our advancement and fight for the future. She urges her fellow free women to imagine beyond the very basics of education in order to prepare for the day when they might be acknowledged as capable, respected citizens. And this is something that my third character, Mary E. Webb, wrangles with each and every day. If, however, an increasing desire for mental 
improvement and an ambition to excel in pursuits that require intellectual culture furnish evidence that they are fit for something besides slavery, they are in a fair way of vindicating their right to freedom. Mrs. West, whom the Philadelphia newspapers term the Black City, is a new candidate in a department which, thus far, the Blacks, we believe, have not entered. She proposes to give breathing to the speech in Boston from Shakespeare and from some of the poets after the manner of Fanny Kemble. Her career has been a singular one. She was educated in a convent and is a woman of cultivation and refinement. Her whole manner is thoroughly that of a lady. She is slight and delicate in appearance with features somewhat of the Spanish cast and entirely simple and Mrs. Mary E. Webb, during the increasingly tense years leading up to the Civil War, worked as an orator and actress, quickly becoming known as the Black Siddons, likened to the famous British actress of the period, Sarah Siddons, for her skilled readings and performances. Mrs. Webb's talents inspired abolitionist Harriet Beecher Stowe to create a one-woman adaptation of Stowe's anti-slavery novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, expressly for her. This piece, called A Christian Slave, was a clever marriage of patronage and promotional innovation that earned Stowe and Webb international recognition. After touring parts of America and performing for royalty in Europe from 1855 to 1856, Mrs. Webb died abruptly of consumption at the age of 31, leaving no diary, no memoir, nothing to concretely establish the facts of her life. In fact, though her, in her own thoughts and words are not recorded anywhere, and all that remains is a brief biographical sketch by her husband. She was uh, a Philadelphia woman. She married Frank Webb in, in 1845. For about 10 years, they worked in clothing-related trades, and she had absolutely nothing to do with the theater. And then the economy turned bad in 1854, and she decided to put her marked elocutionary powers to some practical use. She had only modest success as a performer until her husband drew the attention of abolitionist newspapers because he was denied passage on a ship to Rio de Janeiro because his skin was too black. She suddenly became the darling of the anti-slavery movement and her career took off, gaining uh, audience members like Lucretia Mott, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, and Mrs. Stowe. Although a relatively interesting biography to this point, what is not mentioned, the crucial detail that is absent, is Mrs. Webb's appearance. As noted above, newspapers consistently billed her as the Black Siddons, creating specific expectations for audiences and critics when they attended her performances. The descriptor black is an important distinction because, by all accounts, Mrs. Webb was so light-skinned as to be mistaken for, quote, Anglo-Saxon, who was, quote, a deep brunette. Even Frederick Douglass's paper noted that the title was ill-advised, and this controversy remained a steadfast component of every newspaper blurb and advertisement in her performance career. Eventually, this controversy became a public scandal in Boston that was followed in the newspapers as far as Ohio. This incident shaped the content and context of the Mary E. Webb monologue because it, create, it, creates an, it provides both the setting and it illuminates the character's central conflict. 
The setting is complex because it's split into a public and a private place. This happens in two different areas. During the monologue, Mrs. Webb is first in her private hotel room where she's preparing to perform A Christian Slave for the first time. Then she later appears in public in, on tour in Europe. As the lights rise, Mrs. Webb is distracted from her rehearsal because she's outraged because of a confrontation that she had with a hypocritical Boston abolitionist who has invited her to perform as part of an anti-slavery lecture series. The irony at the center of this frustration is that although the newspaper critics repeatedly state that her skin tone is too light to be called the Black Siddons, she has just been barred from taking any meals in the public dining room or from praying with any of the Boston abolitionists because her skin is too dark. The central conflict for Mrs. Webb, now that she has experienced the abolitionists' falseness and fully understands her status in the society, is whether or not she can continue accepting Stowe's patronage, knowing that she is simply a part of a contrivance to sell novels. In theory, Frank Webb is present in the hotel room, and due to their financial straits, she needs the money that Mrs. Stowe and a professional career will provide. Additionally, she naturally craves the recognition for her artistic talents, and she's, and she's in a vehicle that is sure to bring acclaim. However, she also realizes that her mother risked her life. Her mother escaped three times from slavery in order to see her born free in Massachusetts. And, in, and to work with hypocrites and be controlled by a white person is too high a price for her to pay for fame and security. In the privacy of her room, she bellows at her husband that these abolitionists, as Frederick Douglass claims in his newspaper, are praying, preaching, psalm-singing, black-hearted scoundrels, whitened sepulchers, fair without but polluted within. The private hotel setting exposes Mrs. Webb in a personal moment as she is caught in a frenzy of emotion and reason as she agonizes over whether or not to quit. Mrs. Webb's monologue offers an example of the ways in which characters can be discerned through language and artistic choices. One of the things that is most interesting about the monologue is that you can see the very, the, the very rarely produced A Christian Slave, which highlights this paradox as she rehearses an exchange between the genteel Miss Ophelia and the Piccaninny character, Topsy. Ready? So Brie, Brie has gamely taken on. So the actress playing Mrs. Webb needs to play three different people in this monologue. She is Mrs. Webb, who in one setting, in the private setting, is raging and angry and well-spoken and has a fire and has a, has a real crisis on her hands. Then during that time, she reads over the script that Mrs. That Mrs. Stowe has adapted for her. And she, the, the newspapers t call, her, um, call her accent her, that she can imitate the darkies, the, her, her Negro eccentricities bring back the darkies back home. That's what one newspaper says about her. So she reads Miss Ophelia in the first setting, the private setting, with this kind of dark irony uh, that expresses her position in this place. So there's the mockery of the genteel Miss Ophelia, but then there's also the piccaninny that she knows she's expected to play. Mm -hmm. One of, the, one of the harshest things for her to deal with is the fact that she is too white and too black. So she is too white to be called the Black Siddons, and she is too black to be accepted in the, in the public house, right? But what she realizes is that because of that dichotomy, she is perfect to play this part for Mrs. Stowe. She can play the Miss Ophelia, the genteel white woman, and she can play the piccaninny.
Yes. Bring it on. Do you think then, particularly given that I am livid, mm -hmm. opening monologue, that I would be taking this role seriously? Or do you or would this be something then that I could say, okay, the man, I'll, sh I'll show you. That is exactly what's happening in this part. In the, this, is, this is why it's important, private setting versus public setting. We're going to see Kim, I have a video of Kim doing it in the public setting when she's in Europe in front of the royalty and has, eventually she decides she has to go through with it and has to do it because they need the money. So she has to eventually make this the, the, the reading that everyone expects. But in her private hotel room with her husband, who knows exactly all of this, she is. She's, she is mocking her, the Negro eccentricities that they expect of her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah. And this would be the actual performance? Mm-hmm. Okay. This, this one right now can be in her private hotel, her hotel room. So it could be even a little bit more? Yes, I do. to show you just how my bed is to be made. I am very particular about my bed. You must learn exactly how to do it. Yes, ma'am. Now, Topsy, look here. This is the hem of the sheet. This is the Good. I'm going to stop you there for one second. Wonderful. Yeah. Good. Now, remember, Miss Ophelia is of the, of the mm. land. Yes, there you go. Yes, there you go. And she's Southern. She has a, she's very genteel. So it really explores the range of Mrs. Webb's abilities. So she's as, she's as genteel as you can get. And then the, the, the Topsy was great. Even explore what it's like the, the bottom half of Topsy. You know, she's as bedraggled as they come, but she's a little shuffly. <laughs> okay. Little, okay. okay, good. Whichever, you can continue. Now, Topsy, look here. This is the hem of the sheet. This is the right side of the sheet, and this is the wrong. Will you remember? Yes, ma'am. Now, Topsy, let's see you do this. You naughty, wicked child, you've been stealing this. Laws, how could it have gotten in my sleeve? Topsy, you naughty girl, don't you tell me a lie. You stole that ribbon. Uh, Mrs. I declare for it, I didn't never see it till this here blessed minute. Topsy, don't you know it's wicked to tell lies? I never tells no lies. It's uh, just the truth, and I've been telling now, and ain't nothing else. Fabulous. Thank you. So you can see the, the actress playing Mrs. Webb gets to really explore different physical choices, different vocal choices, different accents and expressions. So I'm going to show you one last moment of Kimberly 
playing Mrs. Webb. Contrasting, oh, I'll put this on so it's nice. The contrasting nature of the public and private behavior within the Mrs. Mary Webb monologue effectively conveys the dichotomy between stereotype and reality by literally and figuratively forcing them into conversation with one another. The dichotomy becomes heartrending at the climax of the formerly enraged, articulate, and opinionated Mrs. Webb performs a sadly palatable topsy in public for the benefit of her patron. The ability for audiences to read this reserved performance with the contextual knowledge of her conflict and the abolitionists vividly illustrates my project's ultimate goal, to illuminate each woman's deeply layered experience in order to subvert the stereotypical expectations of the pre-20th century black woman. With only the traces that remain of Abigail, Matilda, and Mrs. Mary E. Webb, their work in the world, I Will Speak for Myself illustrates the ways in which historical research and performance might collaborate in a living historiography that contributes to our understanding of life after slavery, the fight for women's education and equality, and of the abolitionist movement. Together, the scholar and the artist can fill these women with breath and life, shaping a fuller, more nuanced understanding of the complexities of these lives so that it is possible, as Johnson notes, that the residue and traces may yet be made legible, may yet be read for the materiality that was and the memory they yet contain. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.